You can open your Bibles to Matthew 16. Matthew 16, we'll be reading this morning from verses 13 through 20. And when you find that passage, um, if you're able, go ahead and stand for the reading of God's Word, because when the Scripture speaks, God speaks. And so we stand out of respect uh, for God's Word. Matthew 16, verses 13 through 20. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. I shall give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, this week we do jump back into Matthew, our primary uh, series, our expositional series. We've taken a break to talk about the family for a while, and we needed to do that, but now we come back to our bread and butter, walking through verse by verse of the books of Scripture, in particular Matthew. And since it's been a little while, let's do a little bit of review of Matthew. Matthew's audience. Who was Matthew writing to? Matthew was writing to probably primarily Jewish Christians. He's very, at the very least, he's writing to Jews, but probably primarily Jewish Christians. And that's important to realize because as you think about Matthew, and you see a little bit of it in Matthew itself and even what Jesus says, but as you think about um, the Jews that Matthew was writing to, uh, if they're going to embrace Jesus as their Messiah, then they have to essentially, in some fashion or another, they have to break with their neighbors, their friends, their family, who are also Jews, but not confessing Jesus as the Messiah. And so you see, there's, there's tension in this, and uh, tension with that audience, with those Jews, their friends and family around them. And that's a big deal, and it will show up even in this passage that we will look at in Matthew 16. So Matthew's audience is primarily a Jewish Christian. Yes, uh, he's probably hopeful that Jews who aren't currently embracing Jesus as Messiah would hear it and hear about Jesus, but it, it, he is addressing Jewish Christians and their difficulties. And so for that, the purpose of Matthew, the purpose of the whole book of Matthew, we've said is this, the purpose of the book is to prove that Jesus is king. He is the Messiah. He is the ultimate Davidic king. And to do not only that he is the king, but to give instruction to his audience about Jesus' kingdom and how to follow the king. Uh, you see, if the expectation was of the Jews at the time, yeah, uh, God's Messiah is going to come, the Messiah is going to come, he's going to set up his kingdom, it's going to be glorious. Well, wait a minute, if Jesus is that king, well, what about his kingdom? What, what's going on? Why didn't that kingdom show up? And how do we follow the king now? And a lot of what Matthew's been writing, of course, he's showing us Jesus, he's proving Jesus is king, but it also, through the words of Jesus, he's showing the nature of Jesus' kingdom and how to follow the king. And we've been saying all along, the book of Matthew is structured around uh, five chunks, five main chunks. 
And those five main chunks center on Jesus' uh, five discourses, uh, these big teaching sections that he gives throughout the book. So the first one uh, that you're all familiar with is Sermon on the Mount. That's the first main teaching section. And then interspersed between these teaching sections is narrative. Uh, so we've got narrative, then a, a teaching of Jesus, then narrative, then a teaching of Jesus. So let me just walk you through those briefly to bring us up to speed with where we're at now. Uh, the first section encounters Jesus' birth. The first narrative section before the Sermon on the Mount encounters Jesus' birth to show, yeah, this is the Messiah. He is fulfilling Scripture. Even before he's, he's born, he's fulfilling Scripture. Uh, and it leads up through the ministry of John the Baptist as the one who would prepare the way for the Lord's Christ uh, to speak of, uh, and remember John's primary message was, repent for the kingdom of the heavens has drawn near. The, the idea is God's kingdom is coming, his Messiah is coming, judgment is coming connected with that, so you need to repent. And even when John steps off the scene after Jesus is baptized by John, identifying him as that Messiah, uh, Jesus preaches the same fundamental message. Repent, for the kingdom of the heavens has drawn near. Uh, drawn near. And remember what repentance means. We've, we've said it's, it's an allegiance change. It's uh, turning your allegiance from sin and self and turning your allegiance to God, turning your allegiance to Christ. We call that faith. We call that faith. And such an allegiance change, such a repentance change, would result in action change, which is why when we get to the first main discourse in Matthew, in Matthew 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount, that's really kingdom righteousness. Jesus is describing for his disciples, here's what it looks like to live in my kingdom. If you are a citizen of the kingdom, this is what your life should look like if you have true repentance. And the, the crowds notice Jesus' authority, and that leads right into the second main chunk of narrative, Matthew 8 through 9, where Jesus' authority is displayed. It's displayed in his miracles as he heals people, all these sorts of different people, as he does um, cast out demons. His authority as the king is further displayed, which leads into the second main discourse in Matthew 10, where Jesus commissions his disciples, his 12 apostles in particular, to go to the cities of Israel, not the world yet, not the Gentiles yet, but to Israel first, and to speak the same message. Repent, for the kingdom of the heavens has drawn near. It's drawn near in, uh, in the Son, in the Christ. Um, repent, for the kingdom of the heavens has drawn near. And Jesus even alludes to the fact uh, that uh, to his disciples, yes, you're going to go out through all Israel, but even goes beyond that, that as the disciples go out after, he's hinting in the future, that as they go out, his me this message of him in his kingdom uh, is going to be divisive, it's going to divide families, there's going to be persecution, it's not uh, going to be easy, which alludes to even the rejection of Jesus himself. And we start to see that in the next narrative section in Matthew 11 through 12. Matthew 11 through 12, it starts with John the Baptist even having doubts. Is this really the one who's to come? Is this really the Messiah? Is this who he's supposed to, uh, the way he's supposed to be? And Jesus says, yes, John, I, I am. And then Jesus speaks about John and says, if you understand who John the Baptist is, then he's a prophet and more than a prophet because he's the guy, or at least in some sense, he's the guy that in Malachi 4, if you repent, if you believe the message that we've been speaking, then he's going to be that Elijah figure at the end of Malachi 4, the one who comes to prepare the way of the Lord before the day of the Lord comes, before the kingdom comes. And yet, in spite of that, Jesus pronounces judgment. He pronounces judgment on the cities where most of his miracles were done because repentance wasn't happening. 
And then you see the Pharisees and the scribes opposing him, saying, oh, your works are the works of Satan. And, uh, and so he's rejected such that by the time you get to the end of chapter 12, it's over. The kingdom of heaven is no longer at hand because the king has been rejected. Which leads right into Matthew 13, the third main discourse in Matthew's gospel, which describes, well, what is the kingdom coming going to look like now? And Jesus, uh, remember the parables, they reveal and they conceal. They reveal truths about the coming kingdom, but they also conceal them because Jesus has been clear about revelation so far, but uh, because it's been rejected, it gets hidden. It gets hidden with those who do not have ears to hear, with those who aren't disciples. Uh, Yet to his disciples, Jesus does interpret his parables and says, essentially, the kingdom is going to start small with you group, and it's going to grow and then until the Son of Man comes, until, at the, uh, until the second coming of Jesus. He doesn't say it in so many words like that, but the pictures he's setting up prepare the disciples for that mindset. And then at the end of chapter 13 and right on through the beginning of chapter 16, we get the next narrative section, which essentially um, pans the camera onto different groups of people and where they're at with Jesus, where they're at in their response to Jesus. So even his hometown rejects him as kind of an upstart. Herod thinks he's John the Baptist raised from the dead. The disciples are getting it. They are understanding more of who Jesus is, and they are exercising faith, and yet there are characters like the Canaanite woman who shows what true faith looks like, a great faith, a persistent faith looks like. And so that's what's happened in the narrative leading up to where we are. The scribes and the Pharisees um, and the Sadducees and the Pharisees in 16.1 through, um, 16, through 4, uh, they're still rejecting Jesus. So as you look at the picture coming from the narrative section we've just exited, or still are in, really, but what we've seen is the crowds are still happy to come to Jesus. Um, they haven't changed much. They're happy to hear him. They're happy to get the miracles, uh, but they, they're not disciples, The Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees, the leadership is in full opposition to Jesus, and the disciples are truly knowing who Jesus is, they're truly following him, and yet they're still growing in understanding and faith. And that leads us right into our text this morning, which essentially sums up, or at least the first bit sums up, the views that we've seen in chapters 14 through 16. Now, what we need to say at this point is that the next couple paragraphs, the next section, or a few sections of where we're at in Matthew are a huge turning point in the gospel. Because Jesus has been rejected by his generation of Israel, and because he's already set up before in Matthew 13, okay, the coming of the kingdom is going to look a little bit different than you expected, than you expected, we get a huge turning point in Matthew 16, starting with this passage. And so that's why we took a break right where we did is, well, it's right before the main turning point. Up to this point, uh, Jesus has been proclaiming the kingdom of heaven as at hand, repent, and yet he no longer proclaims that. And even more than that, there's a geographic movement. As he encounters more and more opposition, he actually withdraws farther and farther to the north, culminating in what we're going to see today in our passage. And then from here on out, His thrust and the movement is going to be to Jerusalem and to his death. Now, as we enter this passage, as we enter Matthew 16, 13 through 20, there's a lot going on in this passage. 
there's a ton of threads um, coming into 16, 13 through 20. And so we're going to take our time working through this. There's um, a couple interpretive issues that are difficult, so we are going to spend our time making sure we get this passage right. So just to give you a heads up, this is a part one of two on this passage. We're not going to get through all of verses uh, 13 through 20 today because there is so much going on. And if you need uh, to understand what Jesus is saying, to understand even the nature of the church, we need to understand this passage. We need to get it right. So what's the main idea for this passage as we enter it this morning? It is this, confess Jesus as the Messiah and Son of God and submit to the stewardship authority of his temple assembly, the church. That is what this passage is all about as Matthew addresses his audience and there's implications there for us today. Confess Jesus as the Messiah and Son of God and submit to the stewardship authority of his temple assembly, the church. And really, as you walk through this passage, it can kind of be framed by uh, who's speaking and who's saying what. So in verses 13 through 14, who, are the peop- who the people say that Jesus is, is the main topic. And then in verses 15 through 16, who the disciples say Jesus is, in particular Peter, is the uh, main topic. In verses 17 through 19, who Jesus says Peter is, is the main topic. And then in verse 20, whom the disciples are to say nothing to is the main topic. So it's all about who's speaking what to whom in these um, passages. So let's see first who the people say that Jesus is. Verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, where is that? Whenever we get a geographical marker, we kind of want to know where's he at. Well, Caesarea Philippi is way to the north. Uh, It's about 25 miles to the north of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, It's at the base. It starts at the base, uh, um, kind of at the base of Mount Hermon, which is the highest peak uh, in Israel, very high mountain. And Caesarea Philippi sits at kind of the base of that mountain. It could be a mixture of Jews and Gentiles, but there's a lot of pagan worship associated with this place, a lot of Gentile worship. Uh, The city was given to Herod the Great that we met at the very beginning of Matthew's gospel. Uh, It was given to him, and then his son, Herod Philip, uh, built and dedicated, or was continuing to build and dedicate the city Caesarea for, uh, for Caesar. And it's called Caesarea Philippi because there was another Caesarea, Caesarea Maritima, which was next to the Sea of Galilee. So to distinguish it, we call this place Caesarea Philippi. But it is a Gentile place, there's a lot of pagan worship going on. There's interesting uh, facts about uh, the, the, the sort of worship that was happening here. So why does this Matthew give us this geographic note? Well, remember what I said, there's this, all this language as, that we've seen in the narrative that as Jesus encounters opposition, he withdraws. He withdraws. There's a strategic withdrawal. And this is the final one, the final strategic withdrawal. He's sort of out of Israel in a sense. Um, he's, uh, he's off way to the north. He just had the kind of final encounter. Uh, well, not the final encounter, but the, he just had an encounter with the Pharisees and Sadducees at the beginning of chapter 16. And in response to that, he's headed north for a time. And it is there that he asks his disciples this question. So probably the geographic note is just to note, okay, Jesus is withdrawn because of the opposition, and in that context, and with his disciples in this context, kind of outside of Israel a little bit, he does this. He asked his disciples 
Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now, that question really uh, is framed in such a way that uh, in the, it sums up what Matthew has already shown us in the narrative, and their answers will show uh, and sum up what has been shown in the narrative already. But let's make a couple notes here. First, Jesus applies to himself the title of Son of Man. And we've talked about that as we've walked through Matthew. Uh, the idea of Son of Man shows up throughout the Old Testament, and it kind of builds a theology of the Son of Man. And it culminates in Daniel 7 with the heavenly Son of Man. And really, the Son of Man, the idea of the Son of Man, is one who identifies with weak humanity. You can think of someone like Ezekiel, who's who's kind of portrayed as a weak, but also a representative of his people. So it's one who identifies with weak humanity, but in Daniel 7, the culmination of portraying who the Son of Man is, he will be a victorious king, succeeding where Adam failed, the son of Adam. That's the idea of it. And Jesus, as you can see here, he is using it as a self-reference. He's applying it to himself. But it's one of those titles that wasn't as popular. It is a title for Messiah, which is kind of interesting. It foreshadows what Peter's going to confess and what Jesus is going to talk about here. It is a title for Messiah, even in the Old Testament. But it's not as clear and it's not as popular of a title. So people don't catch on to it. And you can see that in the narrative. And even the disciples here don't catch on to it as much. But he is using it as a self-reference. That's how the disciples understand what he's asking. So, essentially, who do people say that the Son of Man is, is really saying, who do people, uh, the people say that I am? But Jesus is framing it in terms of, I am that Son of Man from Daniel. Now, how do they answer? Verse 14, and they said, so notice he talked to the, this is the whole group of disciples. He asked this question to the whole group of disciples, and the whole group pitches in and says, Well, you know, some say John the Baptist. That's what happened at the beginning of chapter 14. That's what Herod said. Herod said, well, this is John the Baptist whom I killed, and he's been raised from the dead, and that's why these miraculous powers are at work with him. So that's what Herod said. Others say Elijah. Why would others say Elijah? Well, remember, Malachi 4 says, Elijah is going to come before the day of the Lord, before the kingdom comes, before God's judgment comes. John's message and Jesus' message has been, repent, for the kingdom of the heavens has drawn near. So it makes sense, uh, and Elijah is a great prophet, did a lot of miracles, Jesus does a lot of miracles, so it kind of makes sense that people would say, Elijah, okay, he's Elijah. But remember, Elijah didn't die, he just ascended into heaven, so maybe Elijah came back down from heaven to do what is prophesied about him in Malachi 4. But others say Jeremiah. Now, why Jeremiah? Well, if you go back to Jeremiah, uh, Jeremiah speaks to Israel uh, a message largely of judgment before the final wave of exile um, comes in 586 BC. So Jeremiah's message is a message of judgment, judgment against the leadership, judgment against the people. Well, Jesus' message sounds a lot like that. So maybe he's Jeremiah reincarnated, maybe Jeremiah resurrected, uh, maybe he's Jeremiah. Or then we've got the blanket or one of the prophets. Now, what's in common with all of those is he's a prophet, isn't it? John the Baptist, the people considered him a prophet. Elijah's a prophet. Jeremiah's a prophet. Um, 
So at the very least, people think Jesus is a prophet. He's done plenty of miracles to authenticate his message. They, uh, it's a message of judgment. It's in line with the Old Testament prophets. So he's a prophet. Now, what you don't want to miss here is this is a high view of Jesus, isn't it? It's not just everyone you can call a prophet or like someone like Elijah or John the Baptist. They have a high view of Jesus, a prophetic view of Jesus. But it's not high enough. It's not high enough. So that's who the people say that Jesus is. Who do the disciples say that Jesus is? Who do the disciples say that Jesus is? And that leads us into verse 15 and 16. He said to them, and the way it's framed in the original, it's highlighting what's about to come. So the text is highlighting, okay, what's about to come is significant. He said to them, but who do you? And it's the pronoun there. There's an extra pronoun in the original that emphasizes who do you? It's like Jesus is sticking his fingers in all the disciples' chests and say, who do you say that I am. Now, who does he ask the question to? He asks the question to the whole group of disciples, just like he did, right? He just asked the last question to the whole group of disciples. The whole group gave an answer. And he asked another question, and he asked another question to the disciples directly, to the group of disciples, at least the 12, maybe more. And what happens? Verse 16, Simon Peter replied. So what's going on here? He asked a question to the whole group of disciples, and we've already seen in the text and the narrative, you can look back to earlier sections and episodes where Peter is starting to emerge, Simon is starting to emerge as the spokesman, as the spokesman. And that's probably what's going on here. Yes, Simon answers for himself, and there's a lot of what's said here that is directed to Simon. But if you look at verse 20, notice what Jesus does after all this interchange. He says this, then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. And so even what Peter says here, yes, he says for himself, but he's also probably acting as a representative of the group as a spokesman for the group. In other words, the group would have said the same thing as Peter, most likely. In fact, we will see that what he, Peter says has kind of been said before by the group of disciples. But Simon Peter's reply is highlighted here. Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And this is highlighted in the original. In fact, it's highlighted in, uh, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. This is a big turning point in the gospel. And even with respect to Matthew, think, we think about the term Christ. We, what does that mean? Uh, Matthew has used it before. He used it at the very beginning, one verse one, chapter 1, verse 1 in his gospel, the beginning of the, the book of the genealogy of Jesus, the Christ, the Son of of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew has used this term, the Christ, but no one else, no character in the story has used this term yet. The only exception is Herod the Great, and he only uses it in a generic sense when he's talking to his scribes. Hey, where's the, scri where's the Christ supposed to be born? 
But no other character, no other disciple yet in the book of Matthew has said that Jesus is the Christ. Matthew's called Jesus the Christ as the narrator, but as far as a character in the story, no one else has said that Jesus is the Christ. What does it mean to say that Jesus is the Christ? We've talked about this before, but the word Christ means anointed one, which goes back to the Old Testament term Messiah. And really what that alludes to is the Davidic covenant, the Davidic covenant. Uh, What do I mean by the Davidic covenant? Uh, We will turn back to, you can go ahead and turn if you want to. We're going to turn back to the Old Testament to 2 Samuel 7, where that covenant is given. But the, the basic idea of it is that God chose David to be uh, not only David, but his line, his lineage, to produce the ultimate king who would rule over not only Israel, but all the nations of the world. And we're going to see and read about that promise in 2 Samuel 7, 1 through 17. But that is what the term Christ means. It means God's chosen king from the Davidic line who will ultimately rule over all, not only over all Israel and unify Israel and give Israel rest, but all the nations of the world. And uh, the the Davidic covenant is central to the um, biblical storyline. It's commented on several places in the Old Testament. It is given, the record of it being given is in two places, one in 2 Samuel 7, which we're at, and also 1 Chronicles 17. But I'm going to go ahead and read 2 Samuel 7, 1 through 17, because this helps us understand what saying Jesus is the Christ is, but also the things surrounding the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7 are alluded to and picked up on in the rest of our passage. So understanding what's going on in the Old Testament with the Davidic covenant is also essential, not only to understand the title of Christ, but also what Jesus will say coming up in this passage. So we want to get the background. We're going to go ahead and read 2 Samuel 7, 1 through 17. 2 Samuel 7, 1. Now, when the king, referring to David, lived in his house, and Yahweh had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan, the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. That's the tabernacle that Moses had built. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for Yahweh is with you. So what is David wanting? He's saying, Hey, look, I just built built myself a cool house, but the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant, which is like God's footstool where God's presence is manifested on earth, uh, it's still in a tent. It's still in a mobile Mount Sinai, uh, a t- mobile tent going around. Uh, it seems appropriate that we should build God a house, a temple. So David wants to build God a temple. And Nathan's like, yeah, that sounds like a good plan. Go ahead and do it. Verse 4, but that same night, the word of Yahweh came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says Yahweh, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a, t- a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says Yahweh of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. 
And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, Yahweh declares that to you that Yahweh will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your, from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. And to understand what's going on here, what's going on? David wants to build God a house. He wants to build him a temple. God comes back and says, no, you're not going to build me a temple. Your son is going to build me a temple. But not only that, God is saying, uh, you're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. A house meaning a dynasty, the house of David. The house of David that will stand forever and his kingdom forever. And a lot of the language here, even in the Davidic covenant, links back to other concepts in Genesis, etc., where God's plan has always been to have a king over all the world representing him and bringing rest, a final return to Edenic rest, for not only Israel, but all the nations of the world. And God's saying, yeah, I'm going to build your line, and that ultimate king's going to come from your line. And the sort of relationship that we're going to have is a father-son relationship. He's going to be called my son. I'm his father. So this isn't just about one king. It is about the whole Davidic line. So Solomon fulfills some of this. Solomon is David's son. He does build a temple, and yet he's not the ultimate guy. It sets up for an ultimate kingdom and an ultimate temple, which gets picked up on by the prophets and which is the hope of the people in Jesus' day, which is what Peter is confessing. Peter is confessing, you, Jesus, are that ultimate Davidic king. You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. And notice how he tacks on this other title, the son of the living God. Now, that doesn't automatically mean deity, because even with Adam, Adam was considered a son of God. The language that's used in regard to Adam was used as uh, him as a son. That language has the idea of being a priest and a king to represent God's rule in the world. And even Israel as a nation was called God's son. Why? Because they were a priestly nation, a kingly nation to represent God's rule in the world. And yet, as we just saw in the Davidic covenant, there's going to be this ultimate one, this ultimate king of David's line, and he's going to have a son sort of relationship with God. So first and foremost, the title son of God is a functional title. It tells you what you're supposed to do in regard to God. You have a relationship with God in such a way that you are stewardship ruler to all the world for God's glory. That's 
first and foremost, what Son of God means. However, as Matthew has progressed through his gospel, that title of Son of God has taken on more and more of a connotation of deity. Even in the Old Testament, with regard to the Messiah, there are hints and statements that indicate the ultimate Messiah is going to be deity. And then as Matthew progresses, certainly we have the Father's uh, identifying of the Son, you are my beloved Son, with you, whom I am well pleased at the baptism. But even with regard to the characters, they are more and more uh, understanding uh, who Jesus is as God the Son incarnate. You can even see this back in Matthew 14, the last uh, time when they went out on the lake and there's a storm and Jesus was on land and then he walks on water. And we said at that time when we worked through that text, the only one who has the prerogative in the scriptures to walk on water is God. And what do all the disciples confess at the end of that episode in 1433? The disciples, those in the boat, worshipped him saying, truly you are of God the Son. So, yes, Son of God is this functional title. It's another way of describing the Christ, but it also has these overtones more and more of, yeah, he's the Christ, but the Christ is divine. And does Peter get it all? No, he doesn't get it all at this point. But what he said was true and right and good. See, the other answers, the answers of the people, the answers of the people didn't go far enough. They were high enough as it was, right? Oh, Jesus is a great prophet, speaks for God. But it didn't go far enough. And Peter, and by extension the disciples, since he's kind of functioning as a spokesperson here, the right answer is you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the ultimate ruler of the world who will rule over not only Israel, but all the nations of the world and bring the world to Restoration of Edenic peace. That is who you are, Jesus, the Son of the living God. That's who the disciples say that Jesus is. Now, what's interesting is, in this section, Jesus has a lot to... We kind of think of this section as focusing on Peter's confession, but what's interesting in this is there's so much time spent on who Jesus says Peter is. Uh, it almost becomes the focal point of this test, less about who Jesus is, although that's, I mean, obviously central, but then Jesus spends a great deal of time saying who Peter is, starting in verses 17 through 19. And like I said, we're not going to get through all of this today, but what does Jesus have to say about who Peter is based on what he just said? Verse 17 and Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. And now, this word for blessed here, this is the same word for blessed, or blessed, or however you want to say that, as uh, happens in the Beatitudes in Matthew 5. And if you remember that discussion, what we said is that that word that's used for blessed, it, it's not used of pronouncing a blessing on someone, like saying, I bless you, uh, it's the idea of the recognition of someone's favored status. So it's not pronouncing a blessing, it's recognizing you already have a favored status. So you could render it this way, you know, blessed, happy, flourishing. You have a good state, you have a good um, uh, standing. So Peter is, or Jesus isn't blessing 
Simon, he is recognizing he has a blessed status, a happy status, a flourishing status, a good status. And notice how he talks to Simon. Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. Now, what's the whole deal with the Bar-Jonah? Well, that's Aramaic. That's Aramaic that represents, uh, means son of. So Bar means son of. So Simon, son of Jonah. What did uh, Peter just confess uh, about Jesus? You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then Jesus comes back with a little bit of a play on this. He says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, son of John, is another way of rendering that. Why? Why does Jesus say you have a blessed, a happy, a flourishing status based on what you just said, Simon? Because... Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Jesus is recognizing Simon's blessed status, his happy status. He has a good status. Why? Why? Because he didn't come up with the idea that Jesus was the Christ. He didn't, he didn't take that initiative. It ultimately came from the Father in heaven. And really what's going on right here is an example of what Jesus talked about in Matthew 11. Turn back to Matthew 11 um, briefly. In the context of the rejection of cities and places where, uh, yeah, they're interested in Jesus' miracles, but they didn't repent. In that context, in verse 25 in Matthew 11, Jesus says this, at that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And what that sets up, and we said this when we worked through this passage, is that the Father needs to reveal the Son so that you can come to the Son so that he can reveal the Father to you. And that's exactly what is happening with Peter in Matthew 16. That's what Jesus says. He says, all right, you didn't you, didn't recognize, you have recognized accurately, Peter, but the reason you recognize accurately that I'm the Christ, the Son of the living God, that didn't come from you, ultimately. The source of it was my heavenly Father, the one who alone knows who the Son is, and he revealed it to Peter such that Peter was able to make his confession of faith. Blessed are you, Simon, son of John, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And Peter is saying, or Jesus is saying, yeah, you got it right, Peter, but the reason you got it right is because of the Father. This is such a pivotal text because it really tells us, especially, um, it tells us especially how you need to view Jesus if you're going to come to him. Yes, the disciples have been following Jesus, and they have repented, and they have trusted him, but if you're going to come to Jesus, if you're going to avoid the Father's wrath and know Jesus, and not just know Jesus, but know the Father, how is that going to happen? It starts 
with confessing Jesus as Lord, as King. And not just King over you, although that's true, but King over the whole world, the one on whom the whole world hinges and points to. That's how it starts. This is what it means to be a follower of Christ. And as we'll see as the, uh, the, the, the gospel unfolds, yes, being the Christ doesn't just mean having this exalted status. Jesus will, and that shows up in the next section, the next couple paragraphs of this same chapter. It's not just that the Christ has this exalted status. It's that he's going to die for his people's sins in their place so that they don't have to experience the Father's wrath. He's going to die and he's going to rise again to save his people So the Christ is not just an exalted Christ, he's a suffering Christ, but you have to recognize that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. If you want to come to Jesus and you want to to escape the Father's wrath, you want to know God, then you have to lay down arms and say that Christ is the King. Christ is the King that has right over my life, and he has rights over the whole world. You can have a high view of Jesus. You can say he's a prophet. You can say he's a nice guy. That's not enough. You must make this confession. And you can't do it. The Father must reveal the Son to you. You must plead with God to open your eyes to see who Christ is. He is not just some nice teacher. He's not just a wise guy. He's not just dispensing advice. He is the king of the world. And if you will not say that and you will not bow the knee, then he will meet him as judge on that day. And this sort of confession is not just... Oh, yeah, 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 I, I acknowledge verbally that Jesus is the king, that he's, you might even say, yeah, he's God, and, uh, which is true and right. You might even make this, you might even verbalize these same words. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. But what does Jesus say in Matthew 7? He says, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, um, didn't we know you? Didn't we do all these great things in your name? And he said, depart from me. I never knew you. Why? Because the confession must not just be on the lips It has to resonate in the heart. It has to dominate your life with allegiance, which means your whole life is going to change. Your whole life is going to change. Your whole life will be oriented around Jesus as the Christ. Nothing else, no other focal point can dominate your focus. Your life must be about Jesus, that he is the king. He has lordship over your life. You're going to do what he says, even at great cost to yourself, because he is the exalted, the worthy king that you were designed to worship. It's not enough to have a high view of Jesus if it stops short of confessing him as Messiah and son of God and doing what he tells you to do. You must confess Jesus as the Messiah, the ultimate Davidic king, the one who's going to rule the whole world, and the Son of God to be part of his people. And it means allegiance, not just assent. You can't just say, Lord, Lord, you have to live it. If you don't live it, you're going to hear those words from the Lord on that day, depart from me, I never knew you, and God forbid that any of you would hear those words. And as we said, it, doesn't, it starts with acknowledging Jesus' lordship, but also as the rest of Matthew shows, it means trusting him. 
you have no hope in your works or your abilities to bring to God to be escaped from his wrath. You also have, you trust him not only as the ultimate king, but you trust him as the one who's going to die for his people. To What Matthew one twenty one said, you shall call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. So you trust him as Christ, not only as the exalted Christ, but also as the lowly Christ who will who has died for his people in place of their sins and lived the righteous life that they could not live in their place so that they can be acceptable in the Father's eyes. And ultimately, the source of all that is not you, not your cleverness. You didn't figure it out. It's God himself revealing the Son to you. Sometimes we, we go through life and even as Christians, and we struggle. See, and, and that's what you see also in the Gospels is faith is not just a one-and-done thing. It's not just that I prayed a prayer. It's not just that I walked an aisle. It's not just that I sat in church. Faith is a fight. It is a perseverance. And it's a fight to continually see Jesus in this way. And so as we struggle, as we fight, as we say, well, um, I, I want you, Father. I want to I escape your wrath. I want to know you. What's the fight? It's a prayer to say, Father, reveal the Son to me. Keep showing him to me as the exalted Christ, as the exalted Christ and as the suffering Christ on my behalf. That is the fight of faith. So as we proclaim the gospel even, we must make sure that people are not just saying, okay, yeah, Jesus is going to save you from your sins. Isn't that great? You got your fire insurance. You're good to go. That's not enough. Because many can say that they can verbally assent, but they will not take this high view saying, I'm swearing allegiance to Jesus. I lay down arms I swear allegiance to Jesus. He is the Christ. He is the son of the living God, and he owns my life no matter what, bar none. Total surrender and total allegiance. That is what Christianity is. That's what confessing Jesus as the Messiah and the son of God is. He'll develop that next week even more because if you're going to swear allegiance to the son of God, then he even delegates authority to his church to exercise authority in the world. But that's where we'll get to next week. Confess Jesus as the Messiah and Son of God. Let's pray. Jesus, you are the King. You are not just a nice guy. You are not just a wise one. That is true. You are not just a prophet, though that is true. You are not just a savior. As amazing as that is, that is true, but you are the exalted king. Lord, forgive us for trying to have our cake and eat it too and thinking, well, yeah, I have Jesus, but I, I can have my own life. I can live the way I want and still claim Jesus as Lord. Lord, make us a people that are see you. Father, you reveal the Son. Reveal the Son to us daily to see him in all his exaltation. Help us to see him in his exaltation and his humiliation. We need, we thank you, Lord Jesus, for your humility in going to the cross so that you can save your people from their sins, that you live the righteous life that we could not live in our place. We praise you for that. Help us to see you as the humble Christ, but also as the exalted Christ. We thank you that you have ascended to the heaven. You are at the right hand of the Father. You intercede for, you are the one intercessor for humanity. And we long for you to come, to come and take over the world, to sit as king over this whole world and rule it with perfect justice, righteousness, and peace. We long for that. 
Help us to see you. Father, help us to see Christ each and every day. And if there are any in this room who have never seen the Son, Father, I would pray that right now you would override their wills and that you would help them to see the glories of Christ. Help us to proclaim you faithfully as we go out into the world because of how exalted and awesome you are. We love you and we praise you. Christ's name, amen.